Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at several verses in that chapter, so you'll need a Bible to follow along. These brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. So if you need one of those, just get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you, marked for you at James chapter 1. Keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. So please take that home, bring it back with you next week. James chapter 1. Some time ago, I saw a commercial for a medication. And the voiceover on the commercial asked, Do you find yourself laying around, lethargic, not getting things done? It's not your fault. You may have... And then it mentioned some label for symptoms that have become a condition. My girls and I enjoy going to sporting events together, especially college sports. We've gone to many soccer games in Ann Arbor, as well as volleyball and hockey. I think they even convinced me to go to a gymnastics meet once. But at the U of M hockey games, the student section has a ritual that whenever Michigan scores a goal... They point at the opposing goalie who's just let the puck go in behind him and they yell, it's all your fault, it's all your fault, it's all your fault. It's great fun. (laughs) There are some countries that are characterized by what are called shame cultures. In those cultures, shaming yourself or your family is an offense of the highest order. There's great pressure to perform, for instance, academically. Failure is not an option. One cannot be thought of as having failed. When I was studying computer science at Wayne State, there were whole networks of students from foreign countries that had these shame cultures. Students from the same country would naturally band together to help each other study, but they would also sometimes help each other cheat if need be. Because failure was not an option. Now what all of these have in common is that they're based on our common desire to be well thought of. We want to think well of ourselves and we want others to think well of us. And playing on this truth then, the commercial I mentioned can offer a label to describe otherwise undesirable behavior so that it's not your fault. The students at the hockey game are playfully acting on this truth when they taunt that visiting goalie. And shame cultures capitalize on it as they motivate their people to ever higher achievements, sometimes no matter how achieved. We have difficulty accepting responsibility for our failures. And especially our spiritual failures. Or to use the Bible's word, sin. We have difficulty accepting our responsibility for sin. And that difficulty is so acute that we will blame shift to others. I got angry because she pushed my buttons. Or we'll generalize to soften the shame. We all make mistakes. I'm only human. Or we'll even point the finger at God. So James warns in chapter 1 and verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now today and next week, in our series titled, What's God Got to Do with It? 
We're going to consider the issue of God's relationship to our sin and the true origin of our temptations. Because apart from knowing and accepting what the real problem is, we cannot identify and pursue the real solution. So let's ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Father, thank you for gathering us now. Thank you for giving us your word in scripture for putting it in our hands so that we can look at it and be instructed by it. Calm our hearts now, we ask you. Clear our minds so that we can think well and focus upon you and upon your truth about us and about what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to go from this place better equipped to serve you than we came. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, friend, I I ask you, when was the last time you accepted responsibility for sin forthrightly, confessed it specifically, and sought forgiveness unequivocally? You see, many professing Christians confess that they are sinners in general, at least at one time in the past, since they prayed what's sometimes called the sinner's prayer in order to be saved. God, I'm a sinner and I ask you to save me. That's fine as far as it goes, but then as you begin to live the Christian life after being saved, God desires to remake you into the image of Jesus, and that necessitates dealing with specific sins in our lives that blur his image. And I find many professing Christians who have a very, very hard time admitting sin. And I want to explore that in some depth next week as we continue looking at God's relationship to our sin, but for now... It may help for some of you to identify why it is you're like that. Why it is you're unwilling to admit your sin and seek forgiveness from others. If you were raised in a shame family, for lack of a better term, that was your mini, your small shame culture. So you learn to never do anything wrong, which means you learn to cover and lie because, because of course, you did in fact do wrong. But you learn that that was not acceptable, and so therefore you learn to to hide it. If you were raised in a demanding family that required and expected success, then you learn to accentuate, that is, brag about, your accomplishments, and in turn minimize or even deny your failures. And if you were raised in a demeaning home in which you were told how worthless and bad you are, you grew up wanting so badly to show that they're wrong, So that now in adulthood, you can't bear to have someone point out your sin because it takes you back to those bad old days. Now we're going to look at those phenomena in Psalm number 32 next week. But especially for those who struggle in those categories, I hope that you'll be here for that and be ready to receive God's truth on that important manner. But but for now, just know that the blame game that we engage in in various forms, has a long and inglorious history. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time and the first human sin, after which Adam and Eve were ashamed and they hid themselves. Most of you know that story. The proper shame culture that God had created meant that they were appropriately ashamed, and so they hid, and with no way to adequately deal with their guilt, they sought to unload it from themselves and place it elsewhere. And so Adam blamed Eve. And Eve blamed the serpent. And both of them were blaming God, who created both Eve and the serpent. 
So the temptation to accuse of temptation goes way back. And that's what we have in James chapter 1. You have people in circumstances to which they're responding incorrectly and they're blaming God for putting them in those compromising compromising circumstances. Now we saw in the last two messages from this chapter that God sovereignly brings circumstances into our lives that are unpleasant. The Bible calls them trials. But we also saw from this chapter that God does that for good purposes, namely to produce character. So verse 3 says, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, it's important to see that the same Greek word that's translated trial in verse 2 and testing in verse 3 is from the same root, from the same root word that's used in verse 13, but's translated tempt. Let no one say, verse 13, God is tempting me. Now, why is the word translated trial in verse 2, but tempt in verse 13? Well, it's because of what I said a couple of weeks ago. The same circumstance can be for one person a trial that leads to Christ-likeness and for another a temptation that leads to sin. Same circumstance, different responses, and therefore different results. A trial can be for one person a circumstance that leads to Christ-likeness for another person that same situation can become a temptation that leads to sin. And since God is the one who brings that circumstance, then if I sin in it, then why isn't it his fault? After all, hasn't God set me up for failure? And that was the reasoning that was going on with the people James to whom James is writing. So what is the difference between a trial and a temptation since both have the same circumstance, the same situation in common, a couple of things. One is God's intention for that circumstance. God's intention is to try us, to refine us for good purposes, for maturity, and to demonstrate the genuineness of what we say we believe. But secondly, the difference between something that's a trial that makes us better versus a temptation that leads to sin is our own nature. Do we resist the temptation that comes with the trial? Every trial brings temptation. Financial difficulty can bring us to the point of questioning God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can cause us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice and even God's existence. And so testing always includes temptation And temptation itself is a test for us. So we have, as each week, an outline inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out. We're going to see a few things, two major points, and then some sub-points regarding this passage. The first is this. We misuse trials for evil. The trial, that is the difficult situation that we're in of whatever sort, and remember there are all kinds of sorts, verse 2 says they are of many kinds, 
That trial is designed by God to be a step towards spiritual maturity. But our reaction to it is what makes it a temptation to sin. And so I say in the outline, evil is consistent with our nature. Verse 14 says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So the trial, the circumstance that God brought. Now here, this may be the occasion for sin, but it's not the cause of it. The circumstance is the occasion, but not the cause. The external situation becomes a temptation to sin. When our internal desire processes it. Now, if you're awake and you're thinking about this, it may occur to you that Jesus was tempted. But Jesus' temptation was not tempting for him. It was not tempting for him in that he had no capacity to respond to it as Satan desired, namely by sinning. Jesus was given a physical external circumstance, an external temptation that Satan hoped would lead to spiritual temptation, just as it had with Adam and Eve and just as it sometimes does with us. You remember that Jesus had been fasting. He was physically weak. The Bible tells us then at that point, Satan tempted him. But that physical weakness was not coupled with spiritual weakness that could lead to temptation and sin. And that's why the Bible says He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That is, he faced the trials of physical weakness, relational abandonment, bodily abuse, and all manner of suffering. But none of these trials could become temptations to sin as he had no capacity for it. The trial strengthened his human character as God designs our trial to do for us. The the suffering and the difficulties that Jesus endured strengthened his human character. Did you know that? The Bible says God made the pioneer of our salvation, that would be Jesus, perfect, that is mature, through what he suffered. But see, friends, we are weak not only physically but spiritually. And in particular personalized ways, we are weak. And so verse 14 says, Each person is tempted. It doesn't say just generally we're all tempted, but rather each person has his or her own desires to which our circumstances can uniquely appeal. So Satan knows your buttons, your vulnerabilities. Each person is. We each have our own unique ways of sinning and being tempted. What tempts me may not tempt you. And vice versa. The stimulus may be different for each of us, but what is consistent between us is our capacity to respond sinfully because evil is consistent with our nature. So I think it would be good for us to review what the Bible teaches about the stages of human nature. You know, there have been and there will be different stages of human nature. We're in a particular stage right now. But there was a stage of human nature that preceded the one we're in now. Before salvation, before coming to Christ, here's here's our situation. We're not able not to sin. 
I mean, it's just all sin 24-7 all the time. You say, don't I ever do anything good? Doesn't anybody outside of Christ before salvation, didn't I do anything good? Don't they do anything good? The answer is yes. They do things that are relatively good. Nobody does things outside of Christ that are absolutely good. As I mentioned in today's prayer, no one outside of Christ does the right thing for the right reason, namely the glory of God. And therefore, Isaiah 64, 6 All our righteous deeds, then outside of Christ, are as filthy rags before God. Before salvation, you're not able not to sin. Now, there was a phase before sin. There was the all-too-brief phase with Adam and Eve, our representatives who did what we would have done. And so there was a, a time when they were able to sin and able not to sin, and we know they sinned. And then after that and before salvation, now the situation is for those outside of Christ, not able not to sin. That's why the Bible says this in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. But then there is after salvation. After you come to Christ. We still have a sin nature, and so we are able to sin and able not to sin. Both. So now we have power over sin. Romans chapter 6, sin shall no longer be your master. So now you are able not to sin, but because we still have the vestiges of the sin nature, we're able to sin and do. So the Bible says God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you can bear, but when you are, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now then, after self, so we're able to do that, and God supplies that to believers. And after salvation, we're able to respond to our circumstances in a godly manner, not just a sinful manner. We're able to do the right thing for the right reason, namely the glory of God. So the Bible can tell us, make it our goal to please Him. Or in Colossians 1, we pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Do you see now that the situation is different? Before salvation, you couldn't do any of that. It's impossible to please God. Now you can please God. Now, none of that's done in our own power, of course. It's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. It's God working in us. And then there is going to be, in the future, another phase. And this is the one I'm looking forward to. After ultimate salvation, you can speak of future glory in heaven as our ultimate deliverance, our ultimate rescue, our ultimate salvation. And after that, we're in a state where we are not able to sin. Ah. And everybody around us, is not able to sin. But as it stands now, because of the phase we are in, we are perfectly capable of misusing trials for evil because evil is consistent with our nature. And our nature, secondly, I say in your outline, is always good and evil. Our nature is always good and evil. Now... In that point, notice I say our nature. When I say our, I'm talking about Christians. Our nature is now both. 
The nature of the unbeliever is always evil. And in verse 14, James uses imagery taken from, taken from fishing. But each one is tempted when, and then it talks about being drawn away, lured to entice, and then the hook is set, and then the prey is dragged away. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 14, when it talks about being drawn away of our own desire and dragged away and enticed. It does not say evil desire. Now, in the NIV that most of you have, it actually has the word evil, doesn't it? It says evil desire in verse 14. But in Greek, it doesn't have that word. The NIV translators have supplied that for us. And I personally think unhelpfully. Uh, because the desire is simply that. It is simply an intense desire for someone or something. And the someone or something may be evil. It may not be evil. It may be a desire for someone or something good. But it morphs, as we're going to see, into something evil. And it says you're dragged away and enticed. That's actually reversed of what you would normally think of. You would be enticed and then having gone for the bait, then you're dragged away. But that's probably because it was a saying so well known that being precise was not necessary. I took the bait, for example. And so this is straightforward when it's a desire for something that's prohibited. It's easy for us to understand that something has been put out there as bait for us in the fishing imagery and something that's prohibited, a desire to harm someone in vengeance, for instance. That's a desire for something evil. But what about those many, many times when sin is in the context of, of otherwise neutral desire? Or even godly desire. I want something good, not evil. And I'm willing to sin in order to get it or sin in the absence of having it. That's a temptation for this good thing or this neutral thing. That's put out there before me that I want and I'm willing to sin in the absence of having it or sin to get it. So as I've said, desire in verse 14 is simply intense desire for someone or something. That something might be respect. It might be obedience. It might be appreciation. It might be for peace and quiet when you get home from work. You desire something and you're willing to sin in order to have it. So take as an example a a wife with an unloving husband. And she says and she feels, I've never felt cherished. And so now she's on a lifelong crusade to pay back this husband for not supplying this good thing, namely being cherished, something a husband should supply. But having not gotten this good thing, now this good thing can become idolatrous. So that this intense desire now, I want more than obeying God, and I'm willing to sin to get it or sin in the absence of having it. So I'm now on a lifelong crusade to pay back my husband or force him to do what I want. This is the way the progression of an idol in our hearts goes. It starts with 
I want. I desire whatever, whoever, good or bad. But then it moves from I want to I need. This is a, this is a need. This is a God-given need we convince ourselves of. A God-given need for respect, appreciation, to be cherished, whatever. So then it goes from there to I must. I must have this. In order for me to function as I should, in order for me to be whole, I must have this. And when it involves another person, it means I must have this from you so that the pronoun now changes. It goes from I want and I need and I must to you. You should. There's an obligation on you. After all, this is a God-given need that I must have. You're supposed to supply it. You haven't supplied it. You should, but you didn't. And I'll make sure to remind you of that regularly. And so the final step is my quest, my life now, is you change or you'll pay. What you have on the screen right now describes many, many a marriage. You have people, one or both, in the you'll change or you'll pay mode. And it all begins with a desire, sometimes for a desire for otherwise good things. It's a good desire to be cherished, but it becomes an evil desire to be in charge, to force a change in the situation. And the situation that we're in, friends, that is a trial that God designs for Christ-likeness, but depending on our reaction to it, can become a temptation to sin. That situation may be permanent or temporary. If it's temporary, you may have a way out. For example, maybe your job is a trial. And in a good economy like now and low unemployment, you can probably change your job. But remember this. As you've heard me say over the years, a change of address does not mean a change of heart. So you move from one situation to a better situation, but you're still taking the same heart with you so that now it can manufacture an idol out of something else. Having identified now the the exclusive source of temptation and sin, that should eliminate rivals in our minds for what causes temptation and sin for us. It's not the circumstance. What's happening that you don't want or not happening that you do want. It's not the circumstance and it's not the relationship. It's the heart we bring to both. Verse 15 says this. That's the way desire operates then. And after desire has conceived, it bring it gives birth to sin. Conception in this image is when evil desire or when desire is matched to opportunity or good desire is matched to disappointment and morphs into evil desire for control and or revenge. I will change him or I'll get him, I'll change her or I'll get her. 
So friends, we misuse trials because evil's consistent with our nature. And for Christians, our nature is always good and evil, this side of heaven. In your outline as well, our evil results in death. Verse 15 says, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Only when it conceives is sin brought forth. So temptation is not the sin. Some people live in situations that are just constantly temptation. And in fact, the temptation that... The pull, the appeal toward evil for a growing Christian should wane with spiritual growth. As a matter of fact, it can become for a growing Christian second nature to resist. But if we're not resisting, if this temptation is not resisted, then verse 15 says sin becomes fully grown. It intensifies, it becomes stronger. And then it results in all sorts of ill consequences represented by the ultimate consequence, death. So three generations are listed in verse 15. The desire generation, the sin generation, the death generation. Desire gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. And none of this is what God desires or does. Now please Please get this, friends. The best time to avoid these sinful births, you have two births listed here. Sin is birthed. Death is birthed. And the best time to avoid these sinful births is at the beginning. Before the consummation of the circumstance and the desire. We cannot always change the circumstance. But we can change the desires that we bring to it. So that we respond differently. Verse 16 says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about what? Don't be deceived about what God's intentions are for the circumstances that he allows into your life. The people to whom James was writing had deceived themselves into thinking that since God is sovereign over the circumstance, then God is responsible for the evil that often results from it. Don't be deceived. We misuse trials for evil. But secondly, God intends trials for good. If one tendency that we have is to forget how bad we are, and I hope I've reminded you of that, it's my job for you to come in here and feel horrible. So try to remind you about how bad we are. And if that's one of our tendencies, and it certainly is, then another tendency is to forget how good God is. We forget how bad we are, but we also forget how good God is. And in times of trial, especially, we lose sight of the good things that God has given us. Now, it is certainly true that God does test. The Bible teaches this in a number of places. One of those is in Genesis 22, when God tested the faith of Abraham By telling him to offer his son Isaac on the altar, the Bible says straight up, God tested Abraham. In Judges chapter 2, the Lord says, I will use surrounding nations to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord. Second Chronicles says, God tested Hezekiah to reveal everything that was in his heart. 
So God tempts no one because temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God's not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that be brought about in any person. But God does bring circumstances that test. And I say that in God's intention for our trials to be for good, it's because evil is contrary to his nature. Evil's contrary to who God is. We have that point? Evil is contrary to God's nature. Now notice, these three points, A, B, and C, each contrast with A, B, and C under the first point. So this is contrary to God's nature, evil is, but it's consistent with our nature. We said in point A above. God does not tempt anyone, so don't be deceived. Evil is consistent with our nature, but it's contrary to his. Secondly, his nature is always only good. Verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is what's from God, not anything intended for evil. So contrary to what you people to whom James is writing are thinking, no, to the contrary, God brings things for good. Every good and perfect gift is what comes from him. Yes, he does stand behind evil in the sense that nothing can happen unless he allows it. And so he is sovereign over all that happens. But as one commentator has said, quote, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. That means not in the same way. He stands behind them both, but not in the same way, asymmetrically. For evil, there is always secondary causation. Our sin nature, the sin nature of others, Satan, and so on. So we are to believe him when tempted to evil, trust him when experiencing evil from others, and praise him for the many good things that he gives. Believe him when we're tempted to evil. Believe that he is good. Believe that he has designed the circumstance for good. Trust him when we're experiencing evil at the hand of others. We're to praise him for the many good things that he gives. Why? Because he gives every good and perfect gift. So do you need proof that God is good? Verse 17 calls him the father of lights. The father of lights. Psalm 136. God made the great lights. His love endures forever. He made the sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. He made the moon and stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. You notice the connection there? This good God who loves us has given us these all of these good things as proof of his goodness. Calling him the the father of lights emphasizes a few things. One, that he's sovereign. The father of heavenly lights. God's the creator. He's the one who made the stars. He fixed them in place. He charts their course. He's the cosmic and glorious God for whom all things are possible. The one who reigns over every corner of his universe. And it's this creator God who wonderfully takes an interest in us. This God loves us and knows us and gives great gifts to us. Verse 17 tells us as well that he's not only sovereign, but he's dependable. Because he does not change like shifting shadows. God does not change. He made the stars, but unlike them, he doesn't change. 
Like the heavenly lights, our own planet is constantly moving. The whole universe is a swirl of motion. As a result, shadows are never still, but they're continuously shifting. But with God, God remains where he always was. All of that motion among the lights and the planets, that's all a reflection of God's creative power. But though God made the heavenly lights, he's not like them. Where they're constantly moving, he's unchanging and constant. He's not forever shifting his position. Hear this, friends. In Christ, we found the perfect spot to bask in his grace, and we never need to move. God is not fickle. He does not go through phases. We're not the flavor of the month for a time and then cast aside and forgotten about. God is always good to us, and his commitment to us never falters. And so praise be to God, the Bible says straight up, I, the Lord, do not change. You need further proof that he's good? All right, his nature is always only good and, in your outline, his goodness results in life. His goodness results in life. Our sin results in death, ultimately, but his goodness, to the contrary, results in life. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. It says first fruits there. It's an agricultural term referring to the first harvest that anticipates a larger harvest to come. And Christians are recreations of a larger recreation to come. And we look forward to this good God giving us this time when we are not able to sin. When there's no sin and there's no death. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. The word of truth is a phrase used five times in the New Testament. It always means the gospel. So he chose to give us birth through the gospel. The grandest gift we have is the gospel and the new birth that it's given to us. Now, friends, if you believe in and care about only temporal blessings and nothing more, none of this is going to matter to you. But God has changed us, changed our values, our allegiances, our priorities. And God is calling us to look at things eternally from his vantage point. When you do that, you can face your circumstances in a radically different way. No longer as a temptation to sin, no longer blame shifting, certainly not blame shifting to God. But rather seeing the hand of your sovereign, dependable, faithful, good God in whatever the situation is, and then obeying him in it so that rather than becoming bitter, you become better as God designs. I read of an example of this in the life of the late pastor Tom Carson. Tom Carson was the father of New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. Many of you know that name. And D.A. Carson is from Canada, and his father was a church planter in Quebec. For all of his life, Tom Tom Carson faithfully served small congregations in Canada, in particular in Quebec. And D.A. Carson, Don Carson, grew up in that that home. And there was a a big name in Canadian Bible-believing circles at the time that Tom Carson ministered. His name was T.T. Shields. 
T.T. Shields had a, a large church in uh, Toronto. Uh, he founded something called Toronto Baptist Seminary. So he was some, someone that many people looked up to. He was a very powerful figure in Bible-believing churches and circles in, in Canada. T.T. Shields also was, especially in his later days, someone who became very autocratic. And if you didn't agree with him about something, you could pay for that. Turned out that little Tom Carson with his little church in Quebec didn't agree with T.T. Shields about something. It came up at a fellowship meeting that pastors had. Tom Carson stated his position. T.T. Shields was angered, so angered, that he blackballed Tom Carson. And some of the support that Tom Carson used to receive for his little church plant in Quebec dried up. Went through a very difficult time financially and emotionally. But D.A. Carson, his son, never heard that story until 20 years later when he was in Bible college. And he was taking a Baptist history class And the professor told the story of how T.T. Shields and what he had done to Tom Carson. And Don Carson was in the class and heard it for the first time. And he went back to his, his dad and he asked his dad why he had never told him that story. Why hadn't you ever said anything about this crisis to us? And his father replied this way. Don, there were two reasons. First, you were children of the manse. By that, that's a word for of the clergy, of the, of the church. And although you've seen the outworking, the good outworking of the gospel, you've also seen more than your share of difficult and ugly things. And we did not think it wise to expose you to this history when you were young. Secondly, Marge and I decided we needed to protect our own souls from bitterness. So we took a vow that neither of us would ever say an unkind thing about T.T. Shields. And we've kept our vow. I saw that same kind of thing happen in my own home. My dad mom, my dad was a pastor. They went through difficulties that I didn't know about as a child and only learned about later and mostly from others. Because my mom had made a determination that she was not going to become bitter through the trials that a sovereign And good God designs for her good. And in so doing, she protected other people. And God used that in part for me to be doing what I'm doing to this day. We've had to do the same thing with our our daughters. Anybody who's in ministry does if they care about the flock and they care about the Lord's work. But the larger point for us is, friends, whatever you go through, God has designed it for good. And depending on how you respond will determine whether or not you become bitter or better as God designs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for gathering us and letting us learn from you your word about yourself and your designs about ourselves, our susceptibility to temptation and to sin. Lord, as a result of your instruction, help us to go this week now. And battle the flesh, battle the sin nature. Seek to subdue it and to to kill it, to mortify it. Because, Lord, we, we, we want to please you because we want to become like Christ, because we have something better to give our hearts. But, Lord, we can only do this with your power.
by your grace. We ask you to grant it in Jesus' name. Amen.